This morning we're continuing our journey through this beautiful book of the Bible called 1 Timothy. If uh, you're using one of those blue Bibles, we're on page 576 today, page 576. Um, If you're new with us, welcome. Thank you for coming and enjoying what the Lord's doing here. Um, We are in the main body of an ancient but timeless letter where God instructs his people about some of the essential truths and habits or rhythms necessary in order to maintain a healthy congregation. Apparently, to one degree or another, things had gone off the rails a bit in this church, largely due in part to the presence of some false teachers who were confusing people about what is true doctrinally. And so Paul sent, Paul the Apostle sent Timothy to serve temporarily as the the pastor of this church in the town of Ephesus and help restore them back to what we might call gospel doctrine, meaning believing true things about God, and gospel culture, meaning they would embody those truths together. It was a situation requiring both doctrinal clarity and behavioral reform, because both work together in churches in order for them to be solid. Although a specific set of circumstances served as the occasion for the letter, the things addressed in it, the principles and patterns that God graciously gives, are for all churches everywhere. They're universal and timeless. Uh, Last Sunday, We started in this main section of the letter with the topic of prayer, particularly what we're to pray about when we gather together as a church. This morning we'll begin uh, the first of two sermons on the next paragraph, namely verses 8 to 15, in which we'll be considering the topic of gender roles in the Christian community. Um, There are, of course, other passages that teach complementary truths that work alongside this one and address matters like the home, but this paragraph essentially is dealing with men's and women's roles in the family of God, in the church, and so we'll be focusing our attention uh, there. Beloved, God has given us a, a gendered design for the people of God, and here's what he says about that in verse 8. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hairs and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This concludes our sermon. (laughs) (laughs) 
I have come today in full body armor <laughs> and with great trepidation. Uh, friends, if one was to scour the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation for the paragraph most out of line with modern sensibilities. This one would certainly qualify as a finalist. And if you're not a Christian and you're hearing those words for the first time, this might strike you as alarming and potentially abusive. Church, your pastors have been praying for you today that the Lord would help us all to hear what He says in the way in which He intends it, and that we would be encouraged by what God says as it is both true and good, even if it's different than the messages inundating most of the daily hours that we have in life. In God's providence, uh, we need to have a conversation as we reach this paragraph about gender. And there's a particular urgency to this conversation. What I'd like to do today is sort of spend half the message or so introducing the topic and then talk some about verse 8. And then next week, we'll look at the rest of the paragraph together. So I mentioned that there's urgency to this topic. Why is that? Well, let me give you three reasons. Uh, number one, there is a certain inescapability to this subject. If you somehow had no cell phone, no iPad, no computer, no internet, no whatever else I don't know to name, if you lived without access to the internet whatsoever, you would still unless you hid in your home all by yourself, you would encounter dozens if not hundreds of messages every day, inundating you with the doctrine that gender is fluid, that love is love, that all forms of sexual intimacy must be celebrated as long as there is consent. And that any questioning about any of those doctrines automatically renders one a bigot to be canceled. And because this is the environment in which we live, when we encounter scriptures like this, it's inescapable that we need to slow down and ask God for particular each of us have family members, friends, classmates, neighbors, and perhaps even within ourselves are tempted toward claims that were non-binary or bisexual, and many of us have people incredibly close to us who are living actively in gay or lesbian relationships. And again, this isn't so much a struggle out there as it's part of the issues that we face living in this world. And so to live as God's people, we need, we need clarity. And we need charity with each other 
as we seek that clarity. And if this is the environment in which we live, we would be naive to think that that won't have an effect upon us, even those of us who are in traditional husband and wife marriage relationships. What we need is a wisdom from above, and that makes this a timely topic for us to listen to what God has to say. A second reason I think this is urgent is that God speaks to it. There are no wasted words in the Scriptures. God has not given us fluff merely to fill out the pages, making it long and therefore appear important. The vast vast majority of the issues we face in the moment-by-moment stuff of everyday life are actually not addressed by the Bible. Have you stopped to think about that? There's tons of situations in which we are to use wisdom and common sense because there's not a verse about that thing. But this topic is not one of those. This is something God has spoken to plainly. He has not left the design for men and women in the church or in the home to the realms of speculation and freedom. Instead, he has explicitly stated his desires. And so this is a good gift from God, because what God speaks to is always designed to lead us into life and flourishing. Therefore, we Christians ought to be quick to listen and happy to submit ourselves to what God says, even if it's a struggle to get there and takes a while. A third reason this is a topic of particular urgency is that this is a watershed doctrine, perhaps the watershed doctrine of our age. Time will tell, and I certainly may be mistaken about this, but it seems to me that what Christians individually and what churches collectively do with paragraphs like this in the Bible provide tremendous clarity to their entire approach to God and the Scriptures. Will a church accommodate a passage, bending it from what it clearly means in order to suit the culture? Or will a church submit to the authority of God and allow Him to lovingly bend us back to what is true? What a Christian does with this paragraph is a powerful barometer to who's actually in charge of how they live their spiritual lives. And so consequently, as uncomfortable and awkward as this may be, I may have prayed I'd get COVID again. (laughs) We would do well, brothers and sisters, to slow down, to close our mouths, to open our ears, and just to ask for God's help. Church on Mill, 1 Timothy 2, is clear. The church is to include holy men who offer peaceful prayers. It is to include godly women who are adorned with modesty and good works. 
who participate in the family of God as equals. And the church is to follow a gendered design in its leadership. Those are the three things this paragraph says if we synthesize the message. That's a lot to remember, so here's a boiled down sentence. Both men and women must follow the Creator's gendered design for the church. Both men and women must follow the Creator's gendered design for the church. What is that design? Well, that design is that every church in every place, regardless of its culture or size, that every church should pursue being a people of holy men in peaceful prayer, that's verse 8, of godly women adorned with modesty and good works, that's verses 9 and 10, and of both men and women being submissive to God's design for church leadership. That's verses 11 to 15. So today, we'll talk about the first piece of that, and there's simply too much here to do it all in one week. And so next week, the three of you who show back up, we will do the second two pieces of that. If you look with me again at verse 8, just so it's fresh in our minds. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Beloved, in every place of gathered worship, the people of God are to pray, for God gives attention to the praying of His people. What incredible truth. This praying is to be done by repentant, holy men. Now, notice this, par- this, this verse doesn't say women can't pray, women shouldn't pray, but it does say the men must pray. Now, what should that praying be for? In other words, what's the content of that praying? Well, verses 1 through 7 told us. So, this is in many ways a continuation of the previous paragraph. What's the content of the praying? If you missed it, go back and read those verses and perhaps listen to the message or watch it on YouTube. But whereas verses 1 through 7 describe the content of gathered praying, verse 8 articulates the character required in the prayer. 1 through 7, content of the praying. Verse 8, the character of those who pray. Now, before we unpack that a bit, I think we've got to even take a step back from that and just talk about something as simple in some ways as the word men in verse 8 and the word women in verse 9. Do you see those? Men in verse 8, women in verse 9. Church, these two terms, men and women, refer to two equal but different groups of people. Men in verse 8 refers to males. Women in verse 9 refers to females. In the original language of the New Testament, it was 
a, a co the common language of the day in much the, the way that English is today, Koine Greek. There is another word for mankind or man, what we would say today, humans or people. There's another word that can refer to either sex. Those words are not used here. Instead, specific terms referring to men and women are used. In the wisdom of God, humanity has existed from the very beginning as embodied people. And our bodies are part of who we are. And that embodiedness includes maleness or femaleness. Being male or female is not subject to internal desires or external pressure. You're, you're born with, friend, a fixed biological reality. Now, that does not mean, of course, that every man is the same and every woman is interchangeable with every other woman. It does mean that there are a set of biological, physical characteristics that are true for some of us and not true for others of us. God, in his wise design, chose to create two genders. And so there's something being said about men in verse 8 that's not being said to women. And there's something being said to women in verse 9 that's not being said to men. We are equals. We are not ontologically different from each other, but we're not the same. What do we do with this reality? And where did it come from? How did this begin? Well, friend, you don't have to go past literally the first page of the Bible to learn the answers to those questions. If you've never read the book of Genesis, there, there are some um, PG-13 things in the book. There's also a lot of things that form the bedrock for the rest of the scriptures that help us understand what it means to be a human being. And on the very first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, you'll see it on the screens, it says this, then God said, let us make man, that word is man, the word for mankind, people, humans, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, meaning mankind. God created man in his own image. And then so important is it that we grasp that, he emphasizes it again and specifies and gives more detail. God created man in his own image, in the, in the, la, la, la. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Very clearly, the scriptures labor to emphasize God making two genders, male and 
female. And crucially, if you hear one thing today that sticks, I hope it's this. Crucially, notice that passage says that God created male and female in his image. Adam and Eve equals both made to represent, to do particular things and be particular people that display to the world and to each other something of what God is like. This passage is laboring to tell us the basis for how we treat each other and think about ourselves is that we're made to image God. And don't miss this. If you read that closely, it is saying Adam and Eve, male and female, are both necessary in order for humanity to live out the image of God properly. Men alone cannot do that. Women alone cannot do that. We need each other to see all the attributes and characteristics of God that he would want us to reveal to each other by virtue of who we are and what we do. Can you imagine what this world would be like if we believed that about each other? That every person is infinitely valuable because they exist to represent God. So back in 1 Timothy 1, uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, the word men means men. And in 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, the word women means women. And they're not interchangeable. Men, God's directive to us is that when we gather as a church family and we're praying that there's a particular character required in that praying. Those who pray in public among the people of God must at minimum include men who are not presently failing in the temptation of sinful anger and petty quarreling. Brothers, our attitudes as we pray are of great concern to God. A haughty arrogance and a dissension in the heart of the prayer render that praying displeasing to God, irrespective of how eloquent and theologically rich it may sound. It is putrid in the nostrils of God if it's not coming from people, men, who have submitted themselves to him for cleansing from sin. Why? Well, more than getting stuff from God, praying is a vehicle for relationship with God. And our God is a holy God. And therefore, people who would be presenting themselves to him in his presence in prayer must be holy people. God is holy, 
So those who come to him by faith must too be made holy by him. Now notice the manner of the praying in verse 8. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This may be temporarily confusing, but, but hang with me a few minutes and I hope it'll be clear. The focus of that phrase is not on one's posture in prayer, but on one's purity of heart. That is, men, praying with your hands lifted up like this, which is how they would have done it, that's how Jewish men prayed in the synagogue in the first century. And that practice apparently got carried over, at least in some settings in some churches. Men, praying like this is completely fine. You are welcome to do it. There is a certain picture that that graphically provides that you don't get if you don't do it. However, that's not the command of the verse. Many postures of prayer are described throughout the Bible. Think back to your own reading of the Scriptures, and maybe you've noticed some of them. Sometimes as people pray, it describes them as kneeling. Sometimes as people pray, it describes them lying literally prostrate all the way on the ground. Sometimes people are standing. Sometimes some are lifting up their hands in prayer. All of those are completely fine. And our posture in praying is of particular significance in that it, it describes graphically the nature of what we're doing as we pray. But the verse is not mandating high hands. It is mandating holy hearts. Brothers, if you raise your hands in frustration when something doesn't go your way, and if you raise your hands in celebration when your team scores a touchdown, but you've never thought about reacting physically to something spiritual, I'd encourage you to think about why that might be. And yet, this verse is not about a posture, but about character. In the first century, Jewish men in the synagogues would pray with their palms up toward heaven. And perhaps that's why the Ephesian church was doing the same thing. But the problem in that church was that at least some of the men were lifting their hands in order to appear to be in a legitimate way calling upon God. But they were lifting unholy hands. Perhaps due to the contention stirred up by the false teachers. At least some of the men and the church in Ephesus were moving in and out of fighting and arguing and quarreling and, and strife. And then they were coming into the gathering of the church and appearing pious and holy. Do you get the kind of image? 
God can't be fooled. Sinful anger toward fellow Christians, verbal jousting in order to win arguments, divisive stirring up of conflict. God knows. And what we do out there matters for what we do in here. And so, if we're living men in unholy ways, and then we come in to pray, it doesn't matter if we do this, because that's just an appearance of godliness, not the reality. And Paul's saying, knock knock it off. God knows. God knows. Psalm 24 is a helpful reminder of what's described and required as we come to God in prayer. Hear these words, who will ascend the hill of the Lord, who will stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Brothers, one of the facts of being male is that not in exactly the same degree each one of us, but one of the facts of being male is that you and I are prone to fight. Do you need evidence of that? Ninety-three percent of those incarcerated in the United States today are men. Why is that? Is there a conspiracy among the government to persecute men by locking them in prison? No. Men, we commit more violent crime. When we are pushed and pushed and pushed, what often comes out for most of us is a a tendency toward violence. The God-given responsibilities we have to lead in various ways relative to the relationships we happen to be in can quickly get turned by anger and divisiveness and quarreling. And that responsibility, when frustrated in the sinner, can bring about lifting fists rather than lifting holy hands. When we come to notice there's a slow-burning anger in us, or we have a moment of an outburst of rage, when we feel our inward disposition turning toward, quarreling, then men, we must repent. We must turn from that sinful urge and turn toward a godliness that use strength to restrain oneself 
rather than to force our way with lifted fists. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Men, I would ask this morning, would you search your heart? Would you look within and ask God, am I easily angered? Have I been lifting unholy hands? Have I been aiming to win arguments over petty things? Or am I content to trust God and do what seems best, leaving my reputation up to Him rather than seeking to force my way? Is there unaddressed sinful frustration in my heart toward a roommate or a family member or a fellow church member? When Jesus was teaching on the topic of prayer, He he told His followers in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is Jesus' greatest sermon. If you never read, I encourage you. I commend it to you. One of the things he said as he spoke about anger was if you go to what we would say, our language, if, if you go to church and there you realize, oh, there's a problem between me and another brother or sister in Christ, then it literally says, Leave your gift on the altar, meaning stop your corporate worship. Leave, go and work out that issue with your fellow Christian, and then come back and worship. Jesus literally said, leave the church to solve a problem, to repent of an issue, and then come back. Why? Because God wants us lifting holy hands, not unholy hands. If a brother or sister will not repent and keeps on sinning against you, then you won't be able to be reconciled with him or her. However, we ought always to seek to do our part that there not be discord between the people of God. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so, Church on Mill, when we gather, this passage is teaching us, let's pray. And this praying is so significant to God that it's the first thing Paul brought up when he he thought, how can I help this church get back on track? They need to tell the false teachers, stop, chapter 1. But what habit ought they to pick up? What rhythms should they pursue? Prayer. And who should do that praying? There's not an exclusion of women, but there is a clear inclusion of men. And men, as we pray, the posture of our hearts is that we would be holy, gentle, loving. By God's grace, let's never use prayer at Church on Mill as a weapon to make ourselves appear spiritual on the outside, but inside be a cesspool 
of anger and quarreling. Because that hypocrisy is just empty words that doesn't honor God and doesn't benefit in love one to another. Brothers, living with clean hands and a pure heart comes only through being saved by Jesus Christ and then seeking to abide in Him daily. This is not a matter of simple self-discipline, self-control in and of our own resources, but rather of being rescued by God out of our slavery to things like anger and quarreling. And then, by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, His life being given to us, then us, John 15, abiding in Christ, remaining consciously dependent upon God, that when we're tempted toward bickering, fighting, competition, that we instead turn from that sense of frustration and anger over not getting our way, and instead we seek to love one another, asking God, God, Jesus faced enormous pressures from people. I mean, the kind that none of us have faced. And yet, even in those most pressing of moments, Jesus never reacted in rage. Instead, he abided himself in the Spirit who filled him and in the Father who sent him. Brothers, living with clean hands, it's worth saying again, living with clean hands and pure hearts comes only through being saved by Jesus and then abiding in him. Are you wondering this morning, brothers, how to actually do that? It's hard for me to imagine there's a man here who can't look back and see, oh, oops. Honestly, even as I'm preaching this morning, things are coming to my mind about myself. It's a good gift from God. Conviction is sweet. Are you wondering how to relate to Jesus in that ongoing abiding way and how to turn from anger and quarreling to using the strength that God's given you in such a way that, that you're asking him to make you in your experience and posture in life holy again? If you're wondering how to do that, I want to encourage you to do something bold. When we finish this morning, go to another man in this room and ask them for help. Ask them, would you meet up with me? You don't have to do it for the rest of your life. But could I buy you a sandwich or a coffee or that really disgusting stuff some of you drink, boba. <laughs> and could we have a conversation in which you help me as another brother in Christ understand some of the practical aspects of this? Would you do that? Because it is part of the design of God that 
men would help men with these kinds of things. And so go to someone and ask them for help. And then, when we gather together as the people of God next week, lift up a holy heart in prayer. And if you so desire, you are welcome to lift up holy hands as well. Beloved, both men and women must follow the Creator's gendered design. This is not the stuff of optional Christianity. This is basic obedience. Next week, we will consider the rest of the paragraph. And then the subsequent Friday, as Shing mentioned, that's October 20th, uh, that's this semester's Disciple Makers Intensive. And simply because of how massive this topic is, we have coordinated in such a way that we could have additional outside help to think more about this. Dr. Peter Gurry is a good friend. He'll be here to help us understand a particular issue, namely this. Why is it unhelpful to think that equality must be found on the basis of sameness? Why does the Bible not pursue this topic in that way? How is it that everywhere Christianity has been rightly understood and rightly preached, women have been lifted up, not held down? Why is it, to put it again, why is it that equality through sameness is not the design of God? That's what he's going to help us think about. That's October 20th in the evening. Would you pray with me now? Lord, we're thanking you that on something as important as what does it mean to be an embodied person, you haven't left us to aimlessly sort through and try to figure that out but rather you've given us kind and clear directives. This butts up against us in a significant way, in part because of external pressures and in part because of internal desires. Father, we confess today as the people of God that in many ways we're struggling in this arena. And we don't want to accommodate. We want to sit under your authority. And so would you help us by means of your spirit to, to the men to feel the appropriate weight of conviction if needed in areas of sinful anger and dissension and quarreling. And we thank you that you tell us very clearly that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray for my brothers this morning that they would not spin out in guilt, 
but rather that they would stand on the solid rock of Christ where there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then, God, help us to walk that out in humility by asking one another, fellow men, to help us walk faithfully in this arena. And we pray, Lord, that the next time we're together, that the percentage of us who have been abiding in you and therefore have the gift of holy hands would be lifting them up in praise to you. Father, I pray if there's anyone this morning who's been offended by something that they would feel the the freedom to come talk with me and that we might together might seek clarity and compassion with one another. We thank you for your scriptures and we pray that you would rebuild in us a counterculture in which the world can see that God's designs are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.